So we decided to fulfill our bucket list of uh, finishing the 50 states by going to the last one that we hadn't visited yet, but had longed to visit for a long time, and that's Alaska. And our travel agent told us about Happy Trails Kennel, which is where Martin Booser has his sled dogs, and we stayed right there on the property in his bed and breakfast, and he and his wife uh, were there to tell us about the Iditarod, and uh, Martin is an amazing fellow. He's born in Switzerland and served in the uh, Marines there, came over as a young man to work with sled dogs, fell in love with sledding, and has actually run 38 Iditarods and 36 consecutively, he has the record, and he's won four of them. And it's just a real humble guy and uh, told us all kinds of stories that we don't have time to relate to you today. But one of the things, uh, we even visited the Iditarod Museum in Wasilla, and the things that we learned were uh, about the dogs, how incredible they are, and they've been bred for grit. So when I heard that the theme of our missions conference was grit, I thought this is perfect because the dogs uh, really exemplify what it means to run with endurance. So for those who are not familiar with the Iditarod, it is run every March and the longest route is the southern route which they run in odd years. That was this year in March they ran the the longer one, which is 998 miles, although this year, because of COVID, it was actually shortened a bit. Um, but they call it the thousand mile race. And the number of entrants varies from year to year, as do the times. But it was set up back in 1973 to commemorate the serum run. And if you're not familiar with this story, uh, you can see the Disney movie, movie Togo which really gives a wonderful reiteration of that story. And you won't know it until you look in the credits, but the guy who's actually the musher, who's like the stunt guy who's driving the, the sled, is our guy, Martin Booser. So that was pretty cool. So here's the story. Uh, back in 1925, Nome, Alaska is on the West Coast. It's this remote little village which began to mushroom when gold was discovered. And because of its remoteness, dog sleds made regular runs to bring supplies to Nome and then bring the gold out of Nome back into Anchorage. Well, when the diphtheria epidemic hit, there was a real concern for especially the children that people were gonna die without the serum. But the serum was a thousand miles away and Anchorage. And because of the weather, it was all socked in. There was, there was a runway there, but there was no way to get aircraft there. So they figured the only way we could do this is by dog sled. They got 300 miles of the run done by train to Nanana, but the train didn't go all the way west to Nome. So basically 674 miles had to be done by dog sled relay. And the average length of the run for the relay runners was about 30 miles. But Togo highlights the story of Leonard Sapala. He's one of the real heroes of the story, Norwegian man who was probably the most famous dog sledder uh, of his day. 
and Togo was his lead dog, hitched up with 19 others. They took off, headed east before he knew that the relay was being set up. He was planning to go all the way to Anchorage himself. But along the way, he learned that there was going to be this relay. But he had made it all the way to Shaktulik, which is 171 miles uh, with his dogs, where he picked up the serum and headed back. And he did another 91 miles back in 60 degree, minus 60 degree temperatures. So these dogs are really incredible because they can run with endurance in really, really difficult environments. They can run up to 125 miles in a day. Uh, I couldn't walk 125 miles in a week, I don't think. Well, maybe I could, but uh, these dogs are so, I mean, when you show up at the kennel, the dogs are just going crazy. They, they're very sociable. They, they want you to come over. And Martin said, go, you know, go and talk to them, go and pet them. We got to hold a little pup. I mean, they, this little puppy only had his eyes open that day. And they work real hard to socialize these animals because there are 22 checkpoints along the Iditarod Trail. And at every one, the veterinarians are going to check every dog. Uh, thoroughly from nose to tail. So uh, they told us, you know, scratch their ears, you know, make them, make them know that you're there. And even after they finished a long run, the musher has to plant an anchor in the snow because if he gets off the sled, the dogs are going to take off. They just want to go. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. This is how Paul begins 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So the therefores and the so that's are always important to pay attention to when we're in scripture, right? So the therefore is based on what he's already covered in the first two chapters. He introduces himself in the first two verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and immediately he begins talking about affliction. He's talking about enduring suffering, even to the point, he says, of, of despairing of life. In chapter 2, he talks about uh, the, the spiritual battle that we're in and the fact that the, the gospel is veiled. But we've been given this ministry, and Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, I know as you pray for the missionaries, as we're going to do tonight, uh, it's easy just to pray, Lord, uh, bless the missionaries and keep them safe so forth. But one of the things that we often don't acknowledge is that it can be really difficult. Uh, the spiritual battle on the field uh, has all kinds of effects on our missionaries, including emotional. And discouragement is one of the, the great things. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, The Insanity of God. Has anybody read this book? Okay, well, this is a wonderful book. It's a true story of Southern Baptist missionaries in Somalia. And one of the things that I've appreciated about when Nick Ripkin, that's not his actual name, that's a pseudonym, when he writes about his experience, he tells it like it is. He talks about the day-to-day -day things and the, the huge discouragements of seeing uh, new believers martyred, for example, in Somalia. If you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down, he was in Somalia at the time that that happened. 
Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The gospel message is grounded in truth. There are all kinds of truth claims that are out there, all kinds of religious systems uh, in the morning prayer this morning. Uh, different religions of the world were named. There are all kinds of paths to God, and in our society today, people look at them as all being equal. They're all valid ways to reach the God of heaven. But that's not what the scripture tells us. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. Paul says, the word of God is not adulterated, There are people who use our Bible, but they preach a different gospel. Paul anathematizes them in the book of Galatians. There are people who are preaching their truth, but not from the scriptures. There are people who are using our scriptures, but not teaching the truth. Paul says that's not us, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We do not lose heart. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul's very clear, stating that we have an enemy who is actively blinding the minds of unbelievers. I remember when we were in our years in Miami, which is where we met Hal and Carol Rudy. That's how we got connected to Baraka after they moved up here. Um, But we were in Miami at a Bible study, and a good friend of ours, his sister, had heard the gospel many, many times and was not yet a believer. And I remember sitting with her and trying to explain from her from the scripture that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. The natural man can't discern them. And often... In the corner of my eye, I saw Hal Wyburn, who was a professor at Miami Christian College, and he kind of was chuckling a little bit. And I thought to myself, Hal, I'm, I'm serious about dealing with this woman's soul. Why are you over there laughing? And afterwards, I asked him, I said, Hal, why, why were you smirking when I was talking to Pat? And he said, Wes, I'm sorry. I saw that you saw me, and I felt bad. He said, but it just struck me, the irony of this, You're talking to an unsaved person that an unsaved person can't understand spiritual things because they're spiritually discerned. And what a great illustration of the reality that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. I think that's one of the reasons I was so gripped by the last song, right? Because it exalts the name of the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, that in the summation of history, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul says this is who we preach. Missions is not a business enterprise, though <clears throat> sometimes we treat it that way. You know, we, we have policies and we're, we're incorporated. We have 501c3s and we have to report to the government. 
And it can certainly appear sometimes in an administrative office, and Lori's been life's administrative director for some years now, so we have to deal with the legal stuff and the financial stuff. There's budgets and computers and all the kind of stuff that you would have in a regular business. But, but this is not a business enterprise at its heart. It's a spiritual enterprise. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. And you see this reflected over and over again in the Pauline epistles, do you not? Where Paul says, you know, I came to you, you know, not in power, but in, in weakness and trembling and much fear. Paul was a human being. He, he suffered from the foibles of humanity. But he understood that he was a vessel through whom the power of God could be manifest. And that should be our prayer for our missionaries, that the power of God would empower them, would direct them, would encourage them, would embolden them. And then Paul returns to the same theme that he starts in verse 3 of chapter 1, this idea of affliction and suffering, burdens. Listen to his words. We are afflicted in every way. Paul's not talking about, yeah, well, you know, I was out working in the yard and I, I got a little thorn in my flesh. He talks about a thorn in the flesh, but that was a significant one, that he cried out to God three times to remove. And God didn't do it because God said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Afflicted in every way, not just the thorn in the flesh. Listen, we're afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, have you seen the story of Louis Zamperini? Oh, this guy was amazing. He was, a, he was an Olympic runner. In 1936, he represented the United States uh, as, a, as a track star. He, he ran with endurance. He was an amazing fellow. Then World War II broke out, and he was a bombardier aboard an American Air Force, an Army Air Corps flight that got shot down for 47 days. He's floating around in the Pacific Ocean. He started out at 155 pounds. That was his running weight. When he was picked up by a Japanese patrol boat and, and weighed, he weighed 66 pounds. It's a long story. It's a fascinating, it's an incredible story. Um, this scene is probably the most memorable. Uh, he's transferred to the Japanese mainland they know who he is. They know that this guy is an Olympic champion. And they want to break him. And this particularly cruel prison guard has him lift up this plank. I'd like you to hold your hands over your heads for 37 minutes. And do that with a brick. That's what he did with this heavy, heavy plank before he passed out. Angelina Jolie directed this movie because this guy is a superhero. He didn't break even in prison. Here's the so that clause that Paul uses. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So that the life of Jesus. You know, suffering has a purpose when it's connected to the name the person of the Lord Jesus. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. And don't overlook that little phrase, according to what is written. Paul always grounds his message of the gospel in the scriptures. And what scripture did Paul have, by the way, while he was writing scripture? He had the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the according to the scriptures that we see in Matthew, the gospel writers here in the epistles. They're referring to the Old Testament scriptures in which our faith is grounded according to what is written. Paul says, we also believe, therefore we also speak. This is our theme phrase, grit. We believe, therefore we also speak. So what is it ex exactly that we believe? What is it that we speak? I want to talk about seven impetuses from this passage that Paul brings forth. These are reasons to share our faith. These are drivers that move us from out of our seats into our neighborhood, into the workplace, into the prisons, into the homeless shelters, into the abortion clinics, and to countries far and wide. The first thing that he points out is in verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with him and will present us with you. The first impetus for evangelism, for proclaiming the gospel, is the recognition of the reality of our resurrection, that this is not just a hope that we have, it is an assurance that we have. Jesus said that he was going to prepare a place for us, that he would come again and take us to be with him, that where he is, we might be also. The resurrection is the first impetus that he records. The second in verse 15, for all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. The glory of God. How important is the glory of God to you? Again, that fast forward to the book of Revelation, to every knee bowing, to every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord, to people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Gathered around the throne, saying, worthy. God's glory, Christ's name being exalted, is a powerful impetus to proclaiming the gospel. Number three, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we do not lose heart. That's the second use of that phrase. Therefore, we do not lose heart. In the midst of afflictions, persecutions, suffering, the culture against us, the enemy against us, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Never underestimate the importance of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it was more important for you 
He says to his disciples in the upper room, it's more important for you that I go away. What could be better than having Jesus physically present? If he were here preaching to us this morning, we would be truly blessed. But no other church in Fayetteville or Jonesboro would have Jesus in the pulpit. He would be limited to one geographic location. But the Holy Spirit is within every believer everywhere in the world. He's comforting the one who's in prison for their faith. He's comforting the child who's missing a parent who's been murdered for his faith. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. This is Acts 13. Acts chapter 2 is when the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, the 120 in the upper room. But now we're in chapter 13, and a lot has happened between chapter 2 and chapter 13. But the Holy Spirit is still at work, inwardly renewing, being the source of courage and hope and joy and peace. Keep on being filled with the Spirit is... Well, that's not Acts 13.52, is it? That's from Ephesians. Therefore, we, we believe, therefore we speak. So we're back to our pups here, right? Number four. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Far beyond all comparison. Right? Eye is not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul's it speaks of light and momentary affliction. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So here's the eternal perspective. Good advice is begin with the end in view. Begin with the end in view. As we start out on our spiritual journey, let's remember we're going to stand before the Lord. And there's an eternal weight of glory beyond anything that we can think about or imagine. This is what's behind Jim Elliot's famous quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. A martyr in Ecuador in 1956. All right, Paul's momentary light affliction, 2 Corinthians 11:23, And far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, Often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. You know, I'm reading these like I'm just ticking them up. Think about enduring any one of these things. Think about being in the ocean for a, a day and a night. Shipwrecked two times. 39 lashes. You know, Jewish law said that 40 lashes was permitted, but they stopped at 39 so that they wouldn't go over 40. But, the, you know, these are not light uh, taps on the behind with a, with a little switch. This is 39 lashes that rip at the skin. These are Paul's light and momentary afflictions. He says, I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, Dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship. 
through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So in addition to all the physical stuff that he's endured, he's got the emotional and spiritual weight of the ministry that God's called him to. And Paul calls these light and momentary afflictions. Yesterday we mentioned that as part of Paul's call, he's God's chosen instrument to carry his name. So the Lord calls Saul, who's persecuting the church, makes him into the apostle Paul and sends him out and says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul was willing to make believers suffer as a religious Jewish man who considered the followers of the way, this sect of people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, which Paul and the religious leaders of Israel totally rejected. Paul was willing to go after them, to persecute them, to beat them up, put them in prison, have them killed. And now God says, he will suffer for my name. Suffering for the name of the Lord is different than just random suffering. All right, you should be my witnesses, Jesus says in Acts 1.8. And the word witness in Greek is martus. The uh, verb form is martyria. We get our word in English, martyr, out of this because so many of the witnesses gave their lives. And we mentioned yesterday even the stoning of Stephen as the first martyr. Um, but the first of many who gave their lives, uh, many of whom we don't even know their names. Impetus five in Paul's list of seven is God's approval and reward. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is that fast forward look again to our eternal future so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, for we are made manifest to God. God's approval, God's smile of approval. So whenever we're trying to discern a direction in life, I have a decision to make. Uh, two questions that we're encouraged, are encouraging our staff to ask is, of of all the choices that are available to me, which is most likely to result in the greater glory of God, and how will I receive God's smile of approval? Is this decision, this action um, that I'm about to take, is it going to result in God's approving smile? Am I going to get a well-done, good and faithful servant for this? Or is this just my own agenda that I'm asking God to bless? God's approval and, and reward. For the love of Christ controls us. I think those of us who memorized this in King James years ago, the love of Christ constrains us. It, it impels us. It, it directs us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And then number seven, obedience ambassadors. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Notice that, on behalf of Christ. This is not to get a spiritual notch in my 
gun belt, right? This is for God's glory. It's for his sake. It's that he might receive the reward of his suffering. But we are his ambassadors. I don't represent life of Messiah any more than our other missionary friends who are gathered here and those who are unable to be with us today primarily represent our mission boards. Our paychecks come from them, but we are servants of the Most High. Our, our commission comes from the Lord. We are his ambassadors. But you don't need to be a vocational missionary or serve in full-time ministry to be his ambassador. Paul was a tent maker. That was his vocation. But he was an ambassador. He was on mission for the Lord. Think of yourself as his representative here on earth. So here are the seven. I believe, and I ask, do we really believe these things? Do I really believe that I'm going to be raised with Jesus one day? Do I really believe that the most important thing in life is God's glory, that that's the reason that I'm here on planet Earth drawing breath? Do I really believe that the Holy Spirit lives within me and that he is sufficient to help me through anything that comes in life? God designs what we go through. We decide how we will go through it. And we're either going to go through it with our own sense of grit and you know, I'm, I'm going to get through this somehow, or we're going to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit and his renewal in our lives. Do I really believe in eternal perspective? Do I really believe that eternity matters more than what happens here on this earth? Do I really believe that the love of Christ is a compelling force in my life? You know, this is a genitive in Greek, and I don't remember, I think there are 13 different kinds of genitives in Greek, the of, right? The of Christ, the love of Christ. Is this Christ's love for me? Is it my love for Christ? Um, I think a good theologian would say yes, yes. It's his love for me, first of all. Um, we love him because he first loved us. But if my higher love is for him than for myself, or for anything else in this world, then yes, the love of Christ compels me. And do I really believe that I'm on mission for God? That my life matters? That I represent him? And am I desirous of representing him well? Therefore I speak. I believe, therefore I speak. This is not just to be theology that informs our heads. It's supposed to be theology that informs our hearts and moves us to speak, moves our mouths. Therefore, we speak. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And here, the apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, as you see right away in uh, Acts chapter 9, right after his conversion, he immediately goes to the synagogue and begins to speak. The apostle of the Gentile goes first to the synagogue. And as you track his ministry on his three different missionary journeys, that's his pattern wherever he goes. First to the synagogue, and then to the rest of the city. For I delivered to you what was of first importance. It's really important that we understand the message that we're to speak. 
what I also received. First of all, that Christ died for our sins. That means I need to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. A sinner needs a Savior. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This substitutionary atonement, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, that he was buried. He actually died. There's no swoon theory. This is not some myth. We're not following some clever fables that somebody made up. He actually died, and he was raised again the third day. The resurrection is a key point of the gospel. Let's not forget to include that when we talk about a holy God, sinful man, substitutionary Savior who died, was buried, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Again, a reminder that our faith is grounded in the word of God. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This was Jesus speaking to his disciples. Whatever the cost. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. Yes. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Matthew 10, 19 and 20. So here is the Lord Jesus saying, I'm sending you out, just as God said to Ananias, tell Paul how much he's going to suffer. Jesus is telling his followers directly, you are going to have a difficult time. You're going to represent me. Jesus said, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Servant's not greater than his master. But don't worry about what you're supposed to say. Now, this is not um, instruction for lack of preparation, right? Scripture tells us to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's within us. So we should know our Bibles well. But when you're under duress, when you're in the moment, when you're caught off guard, uh, when you're suddenly arrested, don't be afraid of what you're going to say. When you're hauled before the magistrates, the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who gives you the words to speak. And boy, is that a comfort and an encouragement. It's the reality of our faith at work. Jesus said, brother will betray brother to death. The father is child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. We think of this as his generation, but this has been true in oppressive regimes up to our day. Uh, You know, in the communist world, Children were taught to rat out their parents. Uh, There were believing parents who were put in the gulag because the children reported to the authorities, teacher at school, that their parents were reading a Bible at home. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. So, in history, you know, we quoted the the Jim Elliott quote, the five martyrs in Ecuador. Back in 1956, uh, their death was the impetus for a whole movement, a whole generation of missionaries who were inspired by the story of these men who were willing to give up their lives to bring the gospel to cannibals in Ecuador. Uh, The insanity of God, this uh, story of Nick Ripken, it's not only his story of Somalia, but as a way of trying to make sense of a ministry that just disintegrated. 
in his own words, when he went to Somalia, he said, all the believers in the whole country could fill a small Kentucky church. He said, and when I left Somalia, they could all fit in one pew because the believers were being slaughtered. They were being murdered. Instead of seeing growth of the church, he saw the decimation of the church. And it really, really rocked his world. And in wrestling with God, Lord, what's going on? He goes on mission and goes to areas where the church is being persecuted and interviews uh, believers. And his own faith is restored and encouraged. And it's a wonderful read uh, if you haven't read it yet. And Marv Newell's book is about, uh, I think, 16 graduates of Moody Bible Institute who have given their lives in mission, missionary service. And this wonderful website from Open Doors, if you want to see where uh, persecution is taking place, you can, you can uh, click on it. Let's see if our internet's going to run through here. Um, if you go to map view, it pulls up the map, and you can just hover over a country. So you go to North Korea, and it says um, it's, it's number one. And you can click on it, and it gives a profile of the persecution that's taking place. It's a good prayer prompter right here if you want to identify the most persecuted believers in our world today. They need our prayers. I guess I'll get out of And in this week's news, we uh, mentioned yesterday the Haitians, and I haven't heard any news uh, this morning of any release. A million dollars per person this uh, gang is asking for. Okay, so we believe, therefore we pray. Tonight is when we're going to gather for prayer, and there are lots of uh, prayer requests that need to be brought before the Lord. Um, I just want to give you some insight into what's going on at Life of Messiah today. So that you can uh, pray for us in an informed way. So this is our, our website. If you haven't been to it, there's some wonderful resources that are here. Um, if you have unsaved Jewish friends, uh, I'll take you to our uh, evangelistic website in just a second. But this is where, for example, uh, the Life blogs are. Um, oh, yeah, they're not on the screen. So lifeofmessiah.org is what I'm looking at, and you are not. And InSearchOfShalom.com. So let me just tell you briefly. In Search of Shalom got started uh, back in 2010. So there was a rabbi from Brooklyn who came to Emmanuel House. And I know some of you uh, have visited Emmanuel House, and we hope more will be able to now that COVID is over. <laughs> Things are beginning to open up again, thankfully, in New York. And the Jewish community in Brooklyn really took a severe hit just as they did in Israel. Um, in the Jewish world, uh, the ultra-Orthodox, you know, you have to have 10 men in order to have a prayer meeting, and they do everything in community. So if there was a wedding, they still wanted to come to the wedding, and if, when there was a funeral, especially if it was a rabbi's funeral, they came together in, in the thousands. And so COVID really decimated uh, a lot of the ultra-Orthodox community. 
And we're praying that God will use that, um, that really tragic situation, to help people to see, again, the temporal nature of, of life and the fact that we need answers for what happens after, after death in increasing ways. So this rabbi, we call him Rabbi Sammy, was over at Emmanuel House uh, for dinner. And he pulls out a phone and he starts dialing and listening. And Steve Williamson was sitting there, one of our, our, our guys uh, who's on our personnel team. And he watched Sammy listen to a message and hung up and figured he was listening to voicemail. But then he hung up and he dialed another number and he listened for another couple minutes. And when it happened the third time, when he hung up, Steve said, you know, was that voicemail? Because Sammy wasn't saying anything. He was only listening. He said, oh, no. He said, these are the, the numbers that I call. Uh, the rabbis have these recorded messages. So you, you just call, and if, you know, you want a message on marriage or on finances or on the Torah reading for the week, you, you push the button, and then you get the rabbi's messages. And then he said, what number do I call to get your messages? And, of course, we didn't have a number, but we do now. So that was the start of the In Search of Shalom project. And In Search of Shalom uh, is our website. When we moved, uh, well, we didn't move to New York. A lot of times folks think that we live in New York, but that's our training center. We're still near the administrative headquarters in Chicago area. Um, well, one of the things that we realized was we were going to have to find ways to reach out to the ultra-Orthodox community. The ultra-Orthodox community is the most difficult to reach. These are the, the spiritual, if not the physical, descendants of the Pharisees of Paul's day. Um, Paul, who was zealous for the law, these guys are zealous for the Torah. But not so much the written Torah as much as the oral Torah, the traditions. This was already true in Jesus' day. You can see in this uh, famous encounter where the Pharisees come to Jesus in uh, Mark chapter 7 and say, how come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? According to the tradition of the elders, right? They can't say according to what Moses instructed us in the Torah because it's not in the Torah. And it's not that it's a sin to wash your hands before you eat. We all agree that's a good thing to do. But the rabbis were more concerned about the fact that Jesus' disciples, how can you be a good rabbi if your guys are not doing what the rabbis say? The tradition of the elders is you got to wash your hands before you eat. And Jesus said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, you've nicely exchanged the commandments of God for the traditions of men. And in that formulation, you see really that Judaism has become a religion of works. It's a man-made religion, similar to any other religion that says this is the ladder that you climb to reach a holy God. So here we are in Brooklyn, surrounded by these ultra-Orthodox people, and not knowing how are we going to reach them when they are so, so gospel resistant. I gave an illustration yesterday of how we got chased out of Yerucham by the ultra-Orthodox just when one of our guys handed some gospel literature to a couple of them. So the internet is providing a way for us to penetrate into some of the communities that we would otherwise not be able to reach. And when someone sees a YouTube ad for one of our uh, videos And again, if you go to the In Search of Shalom website, uh, you can see some of the videos that I would show up here on the screen for you. But some really creative things have been done as a way to 
capture attention, to draw an audience, and to begin to present the gospel. And one of the songs that we sang, or no, I guess it was a scripture that was read from Isaiah 49. Um, you know, I smiled out loud when that was read this morning. Because the servant passages begin in Isaiah chapter 40, go through 66. Isaiah 53 is the gospel in the Old Testament, right? It's, it is the clearest portrayal. It's the only portrait, the only physical portrait that we have of Jesus, right? I mean, if you want to paint a picture of Jesus, you can read the gospels and all you hear in Luke is that, you know, he increased in wisdom and stature. So, you know, he, he grew up to be a man and, you know, they plucked out his beard according to the prophecy. So you got to paint Jesus with a beard. But apart from that, you know, what do we know? Well, Isaiah describes him as one who has no form or comeliness that we would desire him, King James, right? It's like there's nothing so attractive about this guy that's going to arrest your attention. He looks just like a normal human being. But what he does is supernatural because this one, who is the spotless Lamb of God, is the one who pays for all we like sheep who have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. Well, Isaiah 53 is a major part of the um, uh, campaign for In Search of Shalom. And because now we're finding ways to attract an ultra-Orthodox audience, we're getting far more theological um, challenges and directly from the scriptures, which is a really cool thing, right? I'd much rather interact with somebody about what does, who, who is the servant of Isaiah rather than do you keep kosher or not, right? Because kashrut, you know, eating uh, the clean foods that God delineates in the Torah is not what gets anybody into heaven. Jesus was very clear about that. It's not what goes into a person, it's what comes out that defiles him. So there are a lot of rabbit trails, a lot of things we can talk about that have nothing to do with the gospel. But when you're dealing with who is the servant of Isaiah, you're right in the heart of who is the Messiah. Now, you should understand that uh, one of the Targums, one of the translations of, of the Hebrew text into Aramaic, Aramaic was the language that Paul and the apostles and Jesus spoke. Right? And the scriptures are written in, uh, in Hebrew. So the Aramaic translation of uh, Isaiah 52 the last verses, beginning in uh, 52, 13, uh, talk about, Behold, my servant will be exalted and extolled and be very high. The writer of the Targum Jonathan says, Behold, my servant, the Messiah, will be exalted and extolled and very high. Where do you see that exalted and extolled and lifted up phrase in Scripture? It's also in Isaiah. It's in Isaiah chapter 6 when... Isaiah has the vision, right? So the same description of the Lord high and lifted up is of the servant in Isaiah 52. And that's why the writer of Targum Jonathan says, Behold my servant, the Messiah. But Rashi, who was a rabbi in France in about 1000 AD, Lori and I were privileged to visit the synagogue where he taught. Rashi is uh, like Calvin to Calvinists, right? Calvin's Institutes, or uh, maybe like Lewis Berry Schaefer's Systematic Theology to uh, conservative evangelicals. Rashi wrote commentaries on all of Scripture and on the Talmud. 
And Rashi said that Isaiah 53, the servant is talking about Israel. Right? You go to Isaiah 51, behold my servant Israel. Then the Isaiah 59, uh, uh, 49 passage, my servant Israel. Right? So our hermeneutic says we take the text literally. If it says, if it says Israel, he's talking about Israel. So how can this be the Messiah if he says Israel? But Isaiah 49 is exactly the passage we want to go to, right? Because it's talking about how the servant is going to pay for the sins of, of Israel and Jacob. So it can't, the servant can't be Israel and be the one who restores Israel. So that's just an example of the kind of chats, the live chats that we're able to have on the um, In Search of Shalom site. So pray, because uh, these chats can come any hour of day or night. Uh, we're still trying to build a team of people who are equipped to respond to the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, it's an interagency enterprise one of the fellows from Jews for Jesus, another one from a ministry based out of London, are on our core team. We meet together every week um, to plan and strategize for the videos and, and how to respond to these things. Well, that's just a brief um, update on some of the things that Life of Messiah is doing. Our, our staff are serving in eight countries around the world. We just added three new staff in the last couple of months. Uh, so it's an exciting time. Levi Heason is our executive director since August of 20. 19, and he is doing a superb job as a young leader, a godly, humble, gifted, visionary young leader. Lori and I are privileged to serve under his leadership. And we do want to say thank you as we close our time here this morning for your prayers and for your support. It really makes a difference. But I want to close with where we started, and that's with just this, this uplifted heart of praise to the one who is worthy of it all, the one who is going to receive the reward of his suffering. Are you convinced, these seven impetuses that Paul gives us, which of these is sufficient to get you out this week to share the gospel, to risk rejection, maybe ridicule, but you're not going to jail, you're not going to be beaten with whips 39 times, it's unlikely that you're going to be shipwrecked. Um, but are you willing to, to suffer whatever it is that this culture presently would heave against you in representing the Lord Jesus, knowing that the glory goes to him and he is worthy of his suffering, that one day we will cast our crowns at his feet. May God help us to be faithful.